everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Real Emergency Vodcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this case review of a patient with delirium and agitated behavior. Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Hantevi, Real DX, and 410 Medical, and powered by Prodigy EMS. I am Hillary Gates. I'm the Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. All of these episodes will be available to you for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS. And for those of you watching live today who want to earn one hour of CE, there will be a QR code on the slides that you can scan with your camera and that will direct you to Prodigy EMS. Check us out also on your favorite podcast platform or on the Real Emergency YouTube channel. And finally, don't forget to follow and like Real Emergency on Facebook and Twitter. Let me briefly introduce our three experts. David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System, and he's also the chief medical officer of RealDX. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, EMS physician, and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards Incorporated. Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina, and is a medical director with WakeMed Mobile critical care. He is also the founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical. We have three special guests today who will lend their expertise to the discussion. Toxicologist Jeffrey Bernstein is an EM physician and medical director for the Florida Poison Center. We also have two EMS physicians with us who will provide their experiences regarding these patients who, importantly, are almost always managed initially by EMS clinicians. First is Ken Shepke, the EMS medical director for the Florida Department of Health. He has uh, focused much of his practice on the use of ketamine. And second is Doug Kupis, EMS Medical Director for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Medical Director for NAEMT, and co-author of NAEMSP's 2020 position statement on the clinical care of agitated patients. So some tips for watching today, everyone. We want you to weigh in. The panelists will ask you for your feedback. Feel free to unmute yourself and chime in. You can also write questions in the chat, and we may call on you to share, so be ready. On to the case now. You're going to be watching EMS and law enforcement take care of a man who was found in public jumping on top of cars and exhibiting aggressive and paranoid behavior. He says he has used methamphetamines and he is initially found to be profoundly diaphoretic and hyperthermic when EMS encounters him. We all know managing these patients is difficult and complicated. And so it's important that we realize this body cam footage bears that out and that we give the benefit of the doubt to the providers on the scene as we talk through the case. Let's get started. David, Mark, and Peter, it's all yours. Hillary, thank you so much. Um, Mark and David, great to see you again. And I really want to um, let everyone know that we're very privileged to have Ken, Doug, and Jeffrey on the call today uh, because it's really going to round out the discussion. This is a case that many of you on this call have dealt with. Um, I, I can tell you that as an EMS medical director since 2010, we had the whole Flaca issue in Broward County and one day I was sitting in a state meeting and I saw this guy across the room named Ken Shepke and he was talking about Flaca and ketamine and I just thought he was the coolest guy in the world. Turns out I was right. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we're in this family of EMS and you meet people like Doug Kupis who actually write the position papers for us and then Jeff Bernstein who many of us have called um, on many nights to kind of get that right advice. And he helps, he's helped us out in EMS in, in a great way. So um, I want to say a big thanks to, um, you know, to Mark for enabling us to obtain this video. We want to be, be very uh, humbled by the fact that we have the ability to see what we're about to see. And um, 
just great respect to the, to the men and women who treated this patient. Um, and you'll see here that they just do an amazing job. So Hillary set it up for you already that this is a person who is exhibiting symptoms of agitated behavior and uh, was walking aimlessly in the street saying things that didn't make any sense. We're gonna, we're gonna give you the first clip and we're gonna look at the first care that you're gonna see in the back of the ambulance. So just understand that what you're missing here is what happened prior to this gentleman being in the, in the situation that he's in. And then we're gonna talk about the medication that he received over and beyond the meth that he self-administered. All those put together, you're gonna to watch a clinical, um, you know, uh, a clinical pathway unfold here that's gonna be very interesting and we're gonna learn a lot from what happened to this gentleman. So um, James, if you wanna go ahead and let's go ahead and start the first video and we'll start to make comments after that. It's doing so good. Keep it just like that, keep it just like that. 100.8. No, that's not true. <laughs> well, thank you for chipping in on that. I think we're okay with this. We're not going to add my phone to it for now. He's, I mean, he's able to make commands enough that he can do all that for me. We'll give it, we'll get this going. We'll, we'll make sure we don't overshoot the temperature. We have the thermometer probe up here. Okay. What are some of the first things you're recognizing about this patient? So you can you can throw it in the chat um, if you wanna if you wanna speak up that'd be great. Um, just just in that first twenty seconds of a video, what are some of the people noticing? And you know you can go ahead and, and throw it in the chat. But let me let me actually throw it um, over to um, some of our esteemed colleagues who have haven't seen this video. Uh, so let, let, let me ask you, Dr. Shepke, let's start with you. What do you, what do you see here? Obviously this guy's not really making much sense and you can see that he's dripping wet. Um, but what, what other things are you, are you recognizing here after the first two of Versed, uh, first seven milligrams of Versed and a dose of ketamine? Go ahead. Yeah, already, I mean, you see he's, he's uh, diaphoretic. He's not making much sense. Uh, relatively young looking guy, it looks like to me. I know that the face is blurred out, but it looks like a pretty, pretty young patient we're dealing with. Um, that, that's, that's, all, that's all I can say right now. There's not enough for me to give you a whole lot more, but uh, that fact that he's febrile with all those other things, already one of the things you need to be thinking about is, uh, and I know the term might be falling out of favor, but excited delirium syndrome is, class, is technically somebody who has this metabolic, hypermetabolic hyper state, sweats, delirium, fever, uh, acute metabolic acidosis. And he certainly looks like he's starting to fit that bill just from the initial appearance. So, so th this is perfect because th there's a lot of us out there who have heard this word, you know, that in, in EMS, we shouldn't be diagnosing anything. Now I'm gonna link in the Elijah McLean case in a minute, but let's, let, let's go to Dr. Kupas who, who wrote this position paper. There is a constellation of symptoms here that we're seeing and what, what do you expect your medics to do, Dr. Kupes, when they see this, you know, elevated temperature, sweating, not acting normally, walking into traffic, and it's kind of you're putting it together. Talk about what your expectation is of your medics, and then talk about the nomenclature that has you know, been changed uh, recently. Sure. So let me, let me start on the nomenclature side. Um, and uh, 
you know, we sort of dance around these days the term excited delirium because uh, it, it has fallen out of favor. I think the, um, the issues on the terminology side are that there are some um, references for official medical terminology that don't, don't contain that. Uh, you know, the DSM uh, guidelines, which are a uh, psychiatry uh, diagnosis uh, uh, book of guidelines, and then also the uh, uh, ICD-10 codes, which are used for medical billing and coding. And, you know, a lot of people have, uh, a lot of organizations uh, that don't necessarily have expertise in dealing with uh, patients that present like this, either in the emergency department or in the field in EMS, um, suggest that those aren't, uh, it's not a legitimate diagnosis. I think that we can get hung up on the semantics, but what happened with the position paper that was written is that you know, what we'd rather do is recognize that there are patients who are in a delirious state, patients who are not aware of uh, where they are, their surroundings, um, adequately communicating with, um, with individuals in the healthcare system, and you know, they have delirium and they are agitated. You know, we don't see, as was said, the, the precursor to this, we don't see him you know, jumping on cars or, uh, or exhibiting the agitated behavior, but we sort of have to take, uh, take that story for granted. And if he was not able to communicate with people, you couldn't hold a conversation with him, he wouldn't follow your direction. He was uh, delirious and agitated to the point where he was harming himself or putting himself into a metabolic uh, situation that is dangerous, then, you know, I think uh, you can use different semantics that we prefer now to use uh, agitated with, or I'm sorry, delirium with agitated behavior, or ASEP has started to use the term hyperactive delirium with agitated behavior. But, um, you know, it, it, again, it's semantics, but uh, I caution people to, you know, be careful about using in your protocols and your terminology uh, and your diagnoses on patient care reports and things, the term ad, um, excited delirium. Okay, well, that, that's, that's great insight. Oh, go ahead, somebody wanted to make a comment? So I, I honestly uh, would be careful about using any of those terminologies. I, I tell my friends all the time, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, people get poor medical care is, you know, they go on the internet, they figure out what they have, and then they tell their doctor, you know, I have a migraine, instead of saying I have a headache. Or, you know, they say, I have a migraine, your doctor looks at you and says, well, you know, it's not a left side. No, you don't have a migraine. You, you know, and then they overlook the fact that maybe, you know, you have some other neurologic issue uh, that they're not even looking into because you didn't give them your symptoms. And, uh, um, you, you know, you, you handed them a diagnosis and so you anchored them. And I think pre-hospital people need to be aware that it's, it's really easy, you know, when I'm an emergency physician for EMS to come in and kind of uh, anchor you to a diagnosis and that predisposes me to miss uh, something else to, to miss uh, part of the big picture. I think the, the best way to handle this, especially given the terminology issues you just heard Dr. Kupis mentioned, is to say what the patient has. What are you observing? Patient has altered mental status, delirium, uncooperative, febrile, diaphoresis, hyperventilating. Just just list those things, and you know the diagnosis will be what it, what it turns out to be. But 
That, that way you don't get caught up in the semantics. And, Dr. Peters, go ahead and answer. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I think the uh, the terms that I was using, you know, the the delirium doesn't imply a diagnosis as much as you are assessing the fact that the patient is not connected with uh, with you. You can't carry on a conversation. They are uh, not able to uh, you know be based in in the reality of what's going on and understand what's going on. You know, so I was using delirium for that. You certainly could describe on a patient care report that the patient was unable to carry on a conversation, was not, uh, you know, understanding of the situation or what was going on. That's, you know, that's fine. Uh, when I say delirium, it's not the final diagnosis, obviously. There are many medical things uh, from hypoglycemia to uh, head injuries to, you know, uh, uh, overdose situations that are toxicologic situations that can cause delirium. And then the agitated behavior is really just that. It is a description of the patient's behavior. It is not, uh, again, you know, linking into that. So I think our providers, you know, what was said, I very much agree with. Um, you know, I don't think using those two terms uh, uh, to say uh, that the patient's agitated or that they are not connected to, uh, you know, the ability to understand what's going on um, should in any way have somebody think that's it, that's the diagnosis and we're done. That's just the situation that you need to control better while you're trying to work up what the other things uh, that are going on might be. Let's, let's go back so people can get a really good assessment here. I'm gonna run it back um, and, you, and I want people to listen, look, and, and really hear what's going on. Let's play it. Barbara says on board. How, how long ago? So about three minutes. That was IM. That was yeah, cool. Oh uh, yeah, Colfax on board. Colfax up there. Look at me. Open your mouth. See out your tongue. Yeah, very dehydrated. You need help getting the line or anything? Oh, I got some Okay. You saw he's doing a very good job of making an assessment. You can see the guy was actually following instructions. Notice that he's being restrained. So I wanted to make a mention here that this gentleman is now handcuffed to the bed. And, and, and again, I want to bring up the point here that the way they got him to this point is total of seven milligrams of Versed, and maybe Mark can help me. What was the total dose of ketamine and what was the route it was administered? Peter, I believe the ketamine was IM, and I don't know that we know the entire dose. I think we may hear a mention of it coming up as, as yeah, we move forward. We got it, Mark. It's, um, it's actually IV after they get the IV, and it'll be 100 milligrams of ketamine. And it's worth mentioning, we got a couple comments about where's the end title to kind of get an early assessment of, of his level of acidosis. That's coming. It was a good observation that someone made, but that's coming. Now, now I want to stop here because this is interesting. We just heard that a patient with excited delirium got an IV dose of ketamine. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that because it means that the, the Versed was, um, it, it gave them enough of a window to get this guy to let them put an IV in, right? I mean, how many people here I would love to see it in the chat. 
how many people here are going for an IV with their excited delirium? We're saying the word excited delirium, but you know what we mean, hyperactive delirium. You're giving me chest pain here. Every, every time you say that, we have to retrain that. No yeah, more. we do have to retrain on it. Um, what are your thoughts? So I'd love to hear um, from the panel here about the route of administration. Listen, not that one's right or wrong, but there's a safety issue here and there's a timeliness issue here. Um, obviously, the dose they gave was very good and it worked really well. Uh, thoughts from the panel? Well, I, I would back up even further here because, you know, part, part of my job, I'm a toxicologist. I'm the director of, the, of a large poison control center, but I'm also an emergency physician. And, you, you know, I often have to remind, um, especially physicians, that, you know, you know in, in the toxicologic paradigm, antidotes fall way below, uh, you know, basic and supportive care. And even, you know, my worst cyanide overdose doses, you can support them for a long time before you have to start pulling out antidotes. And in this case, you got a guy, we didn't see the video, but I'm sure this is the guy that I, I remember this. Uh, he was jumping on cars and he ended up falling on his back. This guy could easily have a C-spine injury in addition uh, you know, when he's flailing around, people are trying to get control of him and trying to tie him down. You, you know, he, we, we could be completing a C-spine injury, you know, in addition, you know, and airway breathing, circulation, protect the C-spine, all of that stuff, stuff uh, really comes first before you start thinking about how you grow. Now, obviously, they had to get control of this guy. He was out of control and they, they needed to, uh, you know, to calm him down, but... Right, you make, you make some very good points. I, I would love to hear uh, the opinions from the panel as well that in EMS, when we get there, oftentimes, you know, we had a case once where the guy was trying to crawl through the doggy door. Um, the owner of the house had a gun to his face and thankfully the guy didn't shoot, but like we get there, police are there, it's mayhem. And now we have to figure out, hey, we have a patient who's a medical patient, right? So it's a very fine line between using something just, just to get things going here. Um, I, I would love to hear, um, Ken, what are your thoughts on this? You run a very large system with 150,000 or more patient runs per year. What would you say to Dr. Bernstein's comment? Yeah, so when you've got someone who's fighting you and they're a danger to themselves and others, and we've, we've had violence against our paramedics, we've had people jump out of the back of, our, of moving rescues you need something that you can get in them relatively quickly. Now, this gentleman right now who's lying on a stretcher and doesn't seem to be fighting all that much, I'm not sure I see an indication there at the moment to go ahead and give him something more. But I assume in the beginning when they were fighting with him, they needed to give him something. So our protocol is for intramuscular because the patients I'm envisioning, there's no way you're getting an IV in somebody that's fighting you like that. And it has to be intramuscular. And the reason why we chose ketamine is because of all the various options that are out there, it's the only one that's going to work really fast and still preserve the respiratory drive. So I, I know there are other options. I know folks have been using benzodiazepines and uh, Haldol and maybe droperidol. The problem for us is those things, the onset of action of those are relatively slow compared to ketamine, which is why about a decade ago, we started studying ketamine in the field for, for exactly this use. Okay, excellent. Um, so. I am going to bring that point back to you later, Ken, because something's going to happen here in a, at the 20 minute mark, and we'll get to that in a minute, with regard to his respiratory effort. And I'm going to want to get your opinion, uh, Dr. Kukas and Dr. Bernstein, because, you know, this theory that 
we give ketamine and everyone continues to breathe, as you all know, because you did the paper on this, um, that, that, that may not be all well, uh, so good and true, depending on what other things are in the system. Can I ask a question, Peter? What, just even at a higher level, what are the do's and don'ts about scene safety in this case? Because initially there was some direction following and then it seemed like there was an escalation of agitation. One of the paramedics was holding his uh, legs down. What, what, can the, what do you teach as a medical director? And I'm curious about our esteemed panelists. What can you teach us and I'm curious about our learners as well and attendees, what, what you teach your teams about scene safety, because this, is, this can be a very, very difficult scene to control, especially if they're uh, benzoed out. And uh, I'm just curious what, what you're teaching your paramedics and uh, around that. Let, let's throw that to Dr. Kupis. Doug, take, it, take that one. Sure, so, uh, and, a, and a couple follow-ups on the previous two. Uh, one of the things I'd like to clarify before I answer, Peter, is to get a, a feel for this uh, video. Does anybody know at the point that we're seeing this patient now in the in the little clip that we've seen, did he already get the ketamine? Did yes. he get the Versed two doses and the ketamine and now we're seeing him? Or uh, is he in between the, the uh, midazolam and the ketamine? Doug, unfortunately, we don't have a complete uh, accuracy of timestamps, but I believe, Peter, this is pre-ketamine at this point. I believe so, Mark. I believe the the Versed, the seven milligrams of Versed is on board, but not the and ketamine. And you will see the effect in terms of his agitation and, and uh, need for restraint post-ketamine here in a little bit. Okay, so, thanks so for the clarification. To the to the answer, I mean, I think the you know the the easy answer, if it's easy, is uh, that uh, safety is paramount for your providers and for the patient and for others, uh, bystanders, that sort of thing. And uh, you know, obviously, um, that means ensuring that you have enough uh, people when you are doing an initial physical restraint to the patient to even give. Uh, a medication if needed, ensuring you have enough people to restrain the patient to do enough of the uh, assessment that you need uh, to do that, make the decision as to whether the patient is indeed uh, delirious and uh, uh, at risk and uh, you know, having that go along with their agitated behavior. But you know, those safety things are important. When the clip that we see and taking this in total context, first of all, I was introduced as the Commonwealth EMS Medical Director Pennsylvania, and I am not speaking in that role at all. I'm an EMS and emergency physician from a health system in central Pennsylvania, and I have various roles, but I'm not speaking in any particular role. But in, in looking at the how this fits in with the uh, position statement, so just looking at what we've seen, I see a few things. Number one, anybody like this having high flow oxygen on, you know, somewhat prevents spitting and biting a bit, and also um, does the maximal pre-oxygenation in case something happens in a few minutes. Uh, number two, I see that he's in handcuffs. Uh, you know, handcuffs are considered hard restraints and some systems have policies related to them or not, but the position statement is that, you know, you should have a policy as to how you're gonna deal with hard restraints and they probably should be avoided or transitioned over. Or if they're not, then whoever put them on and owns the key, like the law enforcement, should be in the vehicle with you. And, and they are sure. the, the officers yep. are standing in the wheel. Right. Yeah, so the officers there. You know, I think in the patient's current condition, there might actually be an opportunity to transition those 
uh, hard restraints into soft restraints. So they're still in four points, but you release those because the soft restraints are much easier to remove if, uh, if you do need to do other interventions on the patient. And then um, the last thing I'd say is verbal de-escalation is really, really important. And this guy's a great example. Um, you know, I'm at the ASEP meetings this uh, week and uh, just uh, saw one of their presentations on verbal de-escalation. We haven't put enough emphasis into that. When this crew respects him, talks to him, you know, they're, they're, they're doing some great things. They thank him for being cooperative with, you know, the oral temperature and that sort of thing. They are communicating well at times, but they do not have somebody doing that constantly. And honestly, if I saw this individual out of context of the timeline and everything else, but this individual right now, seeing him, seeing him answer questions, open his mouth when you ask him to put a temperature probe in, leave it in there and let him get his temperature. You know, he is cooperative. He is not agitated and probably should not be getting further uh, medications for agitation. Okay, excellent points, excellent points. And um, there's a small point I wanna make here, which is if you watch this guy is just profusely sweating and they're having a hard time putting the leads on this guy. Um, and they end up spending you know, a little bit of time to try and even get, um, you know, they tried for a 12 lead uh, and, and ultimately it was very difficult to get. So. I wanted to hear from the panel, um, you know, how important is this right now and how much time should we be spending on this? I mean, is it possible that he's got the cocaine on board and he's got a STEMI or what, what have you? Uh, I'm just curious, look, look at those leads coming off. And you can see that the handcuffs. Would you show saline with uh, yeah. bicarb? Hey, do you know what substance it was? No, sir. No. Okay. Uh, I pulled up on him. He's trying to give me cars. I know that. Hey, hey, Brother. well, where'd you pay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had three cars. Okay. Hey, what year is it? My head is running around, spinning and stuck off on the state, brother. What year is it? It was, I think, a new model, brother. 2009, 2010. You know. Hey, how old, how old are you? Uh, uh, I think it was like 2010, 2011, maybe. It was 2012. And we had a. Maybe some Carlux stuff for me, too, for this. Um, I'm not. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, Hillary, you're, you're someone who, you know, been in the field for many years. You have this guy that you can't put leads on for whatever reason. They're trying to use gauze. They're trying to stop. What do you do in that situation on this patient? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, techniques that people have uh, have thrown out there, like um, using alcohol wipes to dry them off or whatever. Um, aside from worrying about a cocaine-induced MI um, and knowing that I can um, detect his his heart rate, his rhythm. Um, and kind of his level of consciousness and everything um, in other ways, I'm not going to worry too much about a 12 lead. Um, if I needed it really badly, I have had times where everybody puts their fingers on the stickers, press the 12 lead button and, and hope you get it. And that's, that's what they end up doing later. Um, but I think they only get the three leads. So um, 
the other thing I just would say about this is that when you watch a video again, this is all we got to give them the benefit of the doubt. And you see all these providers in the back, everyone's trying to chip in and do something. And I, I really like watching this because I like the team approach that there's communication, the supervisor who is uh, body cam uh, footage is, is, is whose uh, footage we're watching is directing some patient care, but actually the, the paramedics and the EMT are, are doing a lot of the patient care on their own and they're trying to work around the fact that he's restrained and there's a lot of hands in there. And then eventually we will, as, as Doug mentioned, we will see them remove the hard restraints and get to the soft restraints. So, you know, while it looks like they're trying really hard all the time to get this 12 lead, really maybe it's more just about um, that's one person's job. Yes, great point. And I know Doug, you want to mention, you want to make some comments on that? I see you have a thumbs up. No, I accidentally raised my hand. I was just trying to raise the thumbs up for the idea. <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a lot of teamwork going on here, yeah. and and um, definitely want to give credit to that. Yeah. Yes, I echo that as well. All right, so we want to now get to the point where, um, you know, he ends up getting um, the ketamine. He's not be fighting us anymore. But whatever you want to do. So the ketamine's on board. Yeah, they have gotten the IV, and here's where the uh, police officers are going to come in and help with the handcuff removal. He's definitely pungent enough compared to what. I got one out. I say he's abundant enough, and then he rips his arm away. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, well, we've got what no? seven of Bursette and a hundred of uh, ketamine on board now. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely holding that line. You got it. That's it. That's you do that. I'm gonna hold my line. I go the soft restraints. It's gonna be weird for you to do because I got my line right here. What I'm sorry, because now the point I want to I want to stop on here is we, we we mentioned the word bicarb here. You heard the word bicarb mentioned, and he did receive bicarb, um, uh, you know, at this point in time. So, Dr. Bernstein, can you can you come in here and talk about the role and use of bicarb in these patients? Um. So, so bi bicarb is basically used, you know, in, in one of three ways in the tox world. You, you know, the first one is to um, correct an acidosis. You know, they, they have an acidemia. You, you want to give them bicarb to correct it. At this point, this guy probably is a little bit acidemic, but we really don't know. And so I think in that situation, I think volume replacement and you know crystalloids is probably more important than you know pushing an amp or two of sodium bicarb. We also use it in the tricyclic antidepressants and other sodium channel blockers um, to you know allow sodium uh, through the sodium channels and uh, you know for uh, myocardial depression and and you know conduction. Uh, widen QRS, and then we also use it to enhance elimination. So, I, I, right at this point, I, I see, uh, I don't see any compelling reason to want to start using bicarb on this patient. Let me ask you a question, though, and, and I also want to bring Ken Chepkin on this. Let me ask you a question. When we see those videos on YouTube where the guy's fighting, 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 he's then handcuffed, hogtied, put prone, 
and then they eliminate the ability for this person to ventilate, then the acidosis becomes so great and they go into cardiovascular collapse. Um, and then so, you know, we, we kind of have always said that in these patients to prevent getting there, and he was getting normal saline as well, but so is there utility in this particular case? Because once he goes into cardiac arrest, it may be too late then. So what are your thoughts on a, a preemptive dose of bicarb in this type of patient? Well, what you're, what you're doing there is you're trying to fix a respiratory acidosis with a metabolic product. So uh, you, you don't give bicarb to fix respiratory acidosis, you ventilate them. But, but, but he, is also, he is also in metabolic acidosis, right? Because he's got, you know, he's agitated, he's got a high temperature. I mean, he, well, he, he, there is, right. He probably, probably is, he probably is, um, but you don't but know. make the respiratory acid, right. But so you don't. I, know that, I think you know, the answer was in the the answer was in the chat uh, early on. Somebody astutely put in, "Where's the entitled CO2?" Because that will give you the clue that you're dealing with a metabolic acidosis. So one take home point is: people with this condition have to be viewed as pre cardiac arrest. This is a life threatening condition, hypermetabolic condition with altered mental status, hyperthermia high risk of severe metabolic acidosis, high risk of cardiovascular collapse. Tasers were blamed at, at killing these folks in the past. So I know currently people are you know, pointing the finger at ketamine, but we have to look at the underlying etiology. The underlying etiology is a life threat. And no matter how you handle these folks, their life is in danger. So you should view every single one of these as pre-cardiac arrest. And to uh, Dr. Antevi, your, your point, yeah, they, if they do have this particular diagnosis, they are often in severe metabolic acidosis. And one of the big errors that are made in management is not allowing the respiratory compensation for metabolic acidosis. So if you allow them to hyperventilate, they can on their own maintain some equilibrium where they don't get so severely metabolic acidosis that shuts down a cardiovascular system. Once you put them prone, put a, neck, put a knee on their back, et cetera, that's bad. So one of the things I like about this video is they've got him supine. Uh, I don't like that his hands are behind his back, but they've got him supine, which, which is great. And nobody's jumping on top of him. Uh, the sedation issue, you know, obviously we, we can talk about various ways of sedating them, but the most important thing from a resuscitative standpoint is number one, allow hyperventilation. Number two, like Dr. Bernstein just mentioned, start flooding these people with fluids. And then the bicarb, you know, that's, yeah, that's a little bit up for debate. I believe that bicarb is probably indicated if their end tidal CO2 is like less than 25, it shows a severe metabolic acidosis. You can probably use that as a surrogate marker of lactic acidosis uh, in, in the field and give them bicarb based on that. But to That's Dr. Bernstein's point, unless you have some measurement, you can't just guess. You want to see that end tidal. I don't think I don't think that giving an app a bicarb is going to hurt anybody. I mean, it's a you know it's it's a pretty benign thing to do uh, most of the time. But you said something really important here. Look at the underlying cause because and I recall you know this video occurred in a time when we were practically in a, a cathinone you know a bath salt epidemic and so it, it was pretty you know common things being common and so that's where we were treating but the differential here is still pretty wide he could be he could have alcohol withdrawal he could be cocaine toxic he could be doing methamphetamines he could be doing cathinones and you know treating the underlying cause um, you, you know, is, um, you know, the most important priority here. Great, great comments. Doug, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the important statements that was just made by Ken is the pre-cardiac arrest statement. Now, we have a crashing patient protocol that was started when um, an agency noticed that a lot of their um, cardiac arrests witnessed by EMS uh, were actually delayed in some of the initial basic care while they were taking the patient out to the ambulance where they were more comfortable. And so uh, for the last three years or so, we have this uh, crashing patient protocol, which is really just a pre-cardiac arrest protocol. You know, in the patients who are lined up to like, uh, you know, be an extremist and, and uh, worsen into cardiac arrest, and this guy is one of those cases, I think I would make the argument anybody that you are doing um, pharmacologic management to take care of uh, agitated behavior and delirium is, uh, is a pre-cardiac arrest patient. So, you know, that goes back to that high flow oxygen from the get-go, having somebody attentively watching his uh, breathing and airway and being prepared to do a good, you know, they have plenty of people in the back, two-person bag belt mask when you need it to ventilate to prevent, you know, the uh, cardiac arrest that might ensue. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm sort of on the fence on the bicarb question on this one. Uh, I think it's okay if they thought to do it. I think it's okay if they skipped it. I think what would be worse would be paying attention to things like the 12 lead or giving the bicarb to the point where you're not really getting ready for the, you know, managing the respirations and, and the volume to prevent the cardiac arrest. Perfect segue. Yeah, I think Dr. Kupis is exactly right that the, uh, we can't get tunnel vision on any one thing. The, the big issues here is airway, ventilation, uh, get, getting the temperature under control, decreasing the hypermetabolic state, low stimulus, because the more agitated they get, the more acidosis they produce, and start getting them to a uh, higher level of resuscitative care. This is a very highly critical patient. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. This, 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 now we're at the moment. We're at, uh, at 1.40 p.m., at least my time. We're now going to go the, to the part of this case where he's got meth on board. He's got seven of her set on board. He's got 100 ketamine IV on board. And now, James, let's play the clip to see what happens next. I'll take care of where's this going? This is right now. This goes over there. I have to Look at that monitor in the back. I want to make sure his heart rate's not going up or down further than we think it is. Sats are dropping. He's after. Yeah, he's after. Give me an yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not after. Okay, let's stop it right there. Let's stop it right there. So um, I'm going to bring Ken in first. Then I'm going to bring Dr. Bernstein in next. So Ken, you have you have data on this. What's going on yeah. here? Why 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 did Ketamine make this guy happen? Yeah, you heard me say that, you know, ketamine, uh, we chose that because of its, uh, its lack of effect on the respiratory drive. That's ketamine alone given intramuscular at appropriate dose. When you start combining stuff uh, and you basically do chemistry experiments and add benzos and whatever I took on the street, now you've got unknown what's going to happen things. And one of, the, one of the experiences we had initially when ketamine came out, it was recommended you would give benzodiazepines to prevent this emergence reaction. What we found is actually every time we did that, or not every time, but the, of the folks that got respiratory depression after ketamine, all of them had gotten benzodiazepines also. So what we found was when you have another CNS depressant on board plus ketamine, now you gotta be worried about respiratory depression. Now you're not dealing just ketamine alone. 
And those things seem to be more than just additive. They seem to multiply their effects. And when you give a dose, a bolus dose of medicine intravenously, as opposed to intramuscular, and it's absorbed much more rapidly, you get peak effects more rapidly, and you're also more likely to see respiratory depression. That's true of multiple different medications. So I'd be afraid of combining both ketamine and any other CNS depressant, whether it be benzos or alcohol, et cetera. And we end up lowering our dose of ketamine when folks have other types of drugs on board like that. Beautifully said. Dr. Bernstein, I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, uh, Kenneth pretty much stole almost exactly what I was going to say here. Uh, yeah, he, he's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, all of these drugs are good drugs if you, if you know how to use them and you use them correctly. In fact, I, I often get consulted and they say, well, well, what drug do you want me to use? And I say, well, what do you have? You, you know, people, I, I'm a big fan of people using drugs that they're comfortable with. Uh, and not trying to experiment with drugs that they've never used before. And when you look at, um, you know, people that get into trouble, it's often, uh, you know, the, the mixtures. We, we used to go up to, you know, 60, 80 milligrams of lorazepam for people with uh, cocaine toxicity, and they, they didn't get into trouble. And then, uh, you, you know, maybe you'd have to protect somebody's airway, but you look at um, GHB. You know, it's a drug that, you know, people come in, uh, they're completely anesthetized. You can pinch them and, and, and try to wake them, try to arouse them. You can intubate them. You can do what you want, but they don't stop breathing usually unless you mix it with alcohol. And then they do. And if you take, you look at um, uh, alcohol withdrawal, those, those patients, we use big doses of benzodiazepines. That's a good way to treat them. You can use phenobarb. That's a great way to treat them, right? The people that end up getting intubated are the ones that got a bunch of benzodiazepines. And then somebody got the idea that, you know, phenobarb is a better drug uh, to use. And then you add phenobarb and then those are the ones that end up getting intubated. Um, and it's the same thing with ketamine. Um, it, it's a great drug. It causes very a uh, little respiratory depression. One of the things that a lot of people don't know, it's actually anti-seizure. Um, you know, so if you have somebody with a lot of cocaine on board, it, it, it helps protect them against seizures. But when you start mixing them with other drugs, that's where, you know, that's where people get burned, I think. And I hope people in the audience are just grabbing all these pearls that you guys are dropping here. Uh, this is incredible, incredible stuff. Uh, Dr. Kupas, what's your take on this, on this patient here? Um, you know, seeing the ketamine, what's happening in, in, in the world today with ketamine, what's happening at the state levels and so forth. And you see something like this, uh, and this guy did well, right? He ended up having a great outcome. What, what's your thoughts on this when you see this? Well, I think uh, to the mixing, I have never been a fan of that. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to go back to the days where people were advocating that in a V-fib cardiac arrest, you should immediately give lidocaine, amiodarone, and magnesium as a cocktail. <laughs> You know, there, there are two different kinds of physicians and probably paramedics. Uh, you know, there's the like cocktail people that want to just like throw everything at them and see what works. And then there are others that want to just be very focused. Uh, I've always been in the very focused category. So I think, you know, uh, pick the right thing and uh, start with it and maximize it uh, is uh, in my mind been proven to be the way to go. Uh, and cocktails often lead to, to worse outcome. So um, in regards to, to your, your question to me then uh, related to this, I think you know, the, the, one of the real hazards, and not only in this guy, but with anybody with respiratory depression is that you see this pattern and it's a scary pattern to see if you're the observer from a distance and you know what's coming. You know, you've got somebody who is not maximally oxygenated, 
their uh, pulse ox starts to drop, they're, they're marginal with that, and then they become apneic, and now the pulse ox really drops. And then the next thing that you're gonna see is bradycardia and the cardiac arrest, and, you know, and then it, it's a dire situation. And so I think, you know, always keeping that in mind and doing everything you can to prevent that crashing patient from becoming hypoxic. Uh, you know, you've got a little time when they become apneic if you've maximally oxygenated them and you are prepared with really good bag mass technique to oxygenate them, then they're not gonna get bradycardic, you know, significantly hypoxic bradycardic and cardiac arrest. Right, and then there's the ventilation side of that equation too, where it's almost like a patient DKA, right? So before you intubate them, hopefully you don't have to, but if they're breathing 50 and after you intubate them, you probably should be going at that same rate. And we can use the end title, the capnography to actually help us understand what this guy's rate was that was keeping him alive and then sustain that rate now that he's in this situation. So, um, so, all right, so you, you, you bring up a really important point I want to point out. The fact that his, and I saw Hillary put it in the chat, that end title CO2 was mostly 30 to 40 that's not necessarily a good thing because if you're acidotic and DK patients, this, this is a clear cut. And you know, when DK is about ready to crash and code, it's when their entitled CO2 starts going up to normal. That's pseudo normalization because it should be low because they should be compensating for metabolic acidosis. And when they're not having a low entitled CO2, it means they're not breathing fast enough for whatever reason. Maybe something is going on inside of them, maybe sedation. So that's, that's something you have to be guard against. And I want everyone to be watching this video, understanding that this patient is getting medications that's allowing the team to treat. If we, if we were on the other end of that, and there are people watching this today who may not have the medications to, to stop this guy from going crazy and injuring people, that's why, that's why this is a tough case, because it's a fine line with trying to do the right thing, keeping the patient safe, keeping yourself safe at the same time. Um, and, and so I think people just have to understand that. So. Uh, James, let's go ahead and play, uh, continue the clip here. We have 10 more minutes, and I want to talk about the legal aspects um, of, of this case as well. Not this case, but of ketamine in general with that. With, uh, hey, Peter, so. can I add one point in before we do that? Um, just a couple of clarifications that came in. I do think there was an end title under 30 at some point. We don't have it on early, but you see that he's not only tachypnic, but hyperpnic. It's a term we don't often use, but he has taking big, huge tidal volume breaths, meaning he is attempting to hyperventilate himself presumably due to a metabolic acidosis, number one. Did the Versed blunt that, as Ken said, maybe it did. I did get clarification, the Versed was all IM, Peter. It facilitated the placement of the IV while in handcuffs and then the uh, ketamine was pushed IV. We can address that later, but in my experience, a faster push of ketamine, particularly in the setting of pre-treatment with benzos, more likely leads to apnea as it did though brief most of the time. And as you noted, he had about one screen's worth of uh, no end title and then came right back. So I think he had a short burst of apnea, got through that nicely. Pre-oxygenation uh, would have probably helped. I think he was on a liter or two, but maybe more would have been helpful. Um, and yeah, those are, those are the main points I wanted to clarify. Dr. Bernstein, go ahead. Great points, Mark. Yeah, excellent points. And in addition, I would also, you know, when it comes to route of administration, realize if you hit somebody IM with ketamine, that's going to take a while to be absorbed. Uh, so the, the, a common mistake that I see EMS making is they give somebody uh, an IM dose of 
ketamine or or even versed and then you know in the heat of the moment you know time is kind of uh, sped up a little bit and you know a minute or two goes by and they say this isn't working we need to give them some more and then they give them you know either an iv dose or another im dose and then by the time they they hit the er that that patient needs to be intubated because they've been overdosed Peter, I, I know, know you're off topic, but he is, Dr. Yeah. Burns, he's so right on with this. I'm, I'm just going to, I know Narcan's not on this. We see the same thing with Narcan. It takes seven minutes to reach peak effects, and you're getting dose on minute two, three, four. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Dr. Burns. Okay, so we only have eight minutes left. So, oh, go ahead, Mark. Do you want to say something? Okay, so James, let's play 30 more seconds of the clip, and then we'll get some more comments, and then we'll, we'll talk, we'll go with Doug Wolfberg after that. You can kind of get a sense of his respiratory effort here. It's, it's, it looks like it's trying to come back to life here, his respiratory effort that is. He's skirting the line of being, he has, definitely has some fears of apnea. Okay, so um, what I wanna talk about next is, is the fact that here we had a patient in the back of the ambulance who was not being told uh, the, the, the paramedics did an amazing job. They weren't being told by anyone what to do and that, that type of thing. But we heard uh, and we saw the case uh, of Elijah McLean where you had two paramedics who, who apparently gave the drug by request, let's put it that way, of the police officers. And what I want to talk about is that, you know, obviously in EMS as medical directors and as the, the, the people on the front lines like you guys who are doing the work, there's a very important point here, which is we make the medical decision and no one should tell us what to do. And um, there were criminal case, uh, criminal uh, um, indictments brought against these two paramedics. So let's quickly bring in uh, two minutes of Doug Welfberg's comment, very renowned EMS um, attorney and prior, prior paramedic. So James, play that to, to hear that part of the story and we can discuss afterwards. What the prosecution is saying is that the paramedics made an incorrect medical judgment that Elijah McLean had excited delirium. They're saying they wrongly diagnosed that condition. And yes, folks, they do use the word diagnosed multiple times in the indictment. So they say that the medics wrongly diagnosed excited delirium, which entered them into the protocol, which the protocol calls for the administration of ketamine. And when they wrongly entered that protocol because of the incorrect diagnosis, they next incorrectly judged Mr. McLean's weight to be 200 pounds and dosed him at 500 milligrams. The applicable protocol, uh, the calculation should have been about 450 milligrams, but they had also incorrectly judged his weight at 200 when it was actually 143 and he should have been dosed at 325 milligrams under the protocol. So in, in essence, what's, what the prosecution is saying here, folks, is that because they incorrectly diagnosed excited delirium, the administration of ketamine was unlawful. Let me say that again. Because the paramedics had incorrectly diagnosed excited delirium, the administration of ketamine was unlawful, okay? So that essentially has criminalized clinical protocols. Now, folks, legally, we have seen uh, the violation or deviation from protocols 
It can be the base, basis for medical malpractice. That is common. We've seen courts cite protocol deviation as evidence of gross negligence because most plaintiffs in civil cases have to get over the hurdle of qualified immunity that most EMTs and paramedics enjoy across the country. We've seen that used as evidence of gross negligence. We've seen it used as evidence of administrative actions by state certification or licensing bodies against EMTs or paramedics. We've seen medical directors use it as justification to terminate somebody's medical clearance or medical command privileges. We've used it, seen it used as a basis to terminate an employee, right? But in, in my 25 years as a lawyer, and then however many years before that as an EMS provider going back to the late 70s, I have never seen the deviation or violation of a clinical protocol serve as the basis of criminal charges, criminal homicide, manslaughter, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, i.e. ketamine. Um, so this is new ground uh, and the prosecutors have bitten off a big uh, piece here. And if they, you know, look, they may or may not be able to prove it in court. So Dr. Kupis, you're the, uh, the, the Commonwealth Medical Director. I wanna get Ken's version next as a state medical director for Florida, but what do you say about, about this statement that uh, in this case? Well, as yeah, I said, I, I am. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Yeah, as I said, I'm not the uh, not the Commonwealth Medical Director on this uh, video, uh, nor speaking for the Commonwealth. Um, Doug Wolfberg did grow up and do EMS seven miles from where I am right now. Um, the uh, uh, thing that bothers me the most is that we do see uh, this uh, very scary. Um, situation where you've got you know a criminal case versus a civil case and traditionally if there is malpractice and you know we do the best we can in medicine uh anywhere that we're doing healthcare, whether it's in the streets with ems or in the hospitals in the emergency departments uh you do the best that you can but we know that uh you know there are uh misadventures uh where uh, an inappropriate weight estimation or something like that occurs. Uh, generally, that has been, you know, malpractice in the past and, uh, and a uh, uh, civil issue. To turn it into a criminal issue, I think, has, you know, has a lot of people scared. And if they're not scared, they haven't really realized what's happening. Uh, because anywhere in medicine, to think where, that a medical mistake could be turned into a criminal uh, act uh, would really have a lot of people second guessing what they're doing, I think, and would be terrible for patient care across the country. Great comment, Ken, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm gonna take a page out of Doug's book and point out that I'm not speaking on behalf of the Florida Department of Health as the state EMS medical director and giving you an official opinion from, from the state government. But uh, in my experience as a local EMS medical director throughout the multiple agencies we work with in Palm Beach County and you know, my experience in research and ketamine for pre-hospital, I'd say if you're going to say ketamine is a uh, deadly weapon, then we are filled with deadly weapons in the field of medicine because there are so many things we use that if used inappropriately, wrong dose, wrong route, could lead to patient harm. And we know that uh, there, there's, you know, there's National Institute uh, study that showed lots of medical harm. So uh, that's medical mistakes happen all the time. Uh, there's a difference between malpractice and, and criminal in my mind. And 
really, if you look at the difference between 300 and whatever dose, 300 milligrams of ketamine and 500 milligrams of ketamine, really, is that, is that the difference there? I, I don't think so. I, I think the difference is you don't allow the patient to hyperventilate. You're not resuscitating them. You're not deal, treating the patient like the, the life-threatening critical illness it is. I mean, like I said, my, my taser comment before, you, it's not the way we, it's not the intervention we're putting that's killing these folks. What we do can either help or worsen the situation, but they have an underlying life-threatening condition before we even show up. And then it's our job to resuscitate them as fast as possible, most effective way as possible. Okay, we're, we're great comment, Ken. Dr. Bernstein, I'm gonna give you the final comment and then we'll let Hillary Gates take us away. This has been incredible. You give us the last word, sir. Um, you know, I, I am skeptical that it was the ketamine that, you know, that was the problem here. I, I agree that, you know, airway, uh, breathing, circulation, the basics is, you know, clearly of utmost importance. And really, you know, what would end up killing this patient if he made it to the hospital and, and was in the ER for a while is the hyperthermia. That, that ends up maybe, maybe not immediately, but like over the next 12 hours you know, what, what gets the patient. So uh, obviously you, you can be sued for anything if you can find an attorney that's willing to sue you. Uh, it, it, in my opinion, it, it's always best to, to act in the best interest of the patient. Uh, and that's the best way to, uh, you know, to, to be able to defend yourself. You know, I did what, what is best. Um, and, um, and I would make also kind of a plug for the Poison Control Center. If you, if you call us um, and, and we are advising you on what, how to treat this patient and what to give, then you really don't have to follow your protocol. You can be, you know, we can be medical direction for you and uh, take responsibility for that. Uh, that. That's an incredible comment. So on behalf of Dr. Peel, Dr. Spear and myself, I wanna thank the three of you for joining us. Uh, it's been incredible, Hillary. Take us to closing. This has been great. Thanks, everyone. You know, um, as a paramedic and uh, all of you who are chiming in and, and sharing your incredible thoughts, um, thank you for doing what you do, for um, recognizing that this issue is of utmost importance and that our safety and the patient's safety is the utmost importance. And we really want you to use our uh, knowledge here, um, these incredible docs that we have in these clinicians to educate your agencies, your medical directors, your chiefs, um, your students, your recruits, whoever they are. And um, please make sure that uh, people are getting the right story and that they um, have the right knowledge to take care of our patients um, and do the best that we can. Thanks everyone for coming to today.